our panel, uh, panel number two today is going to shift direction from antitrust policy theory uh, to structural questions about the Federal Trade Commission itself, the FTC, and its independence. Everyone knows historically this is sort of a quintessential independent agency structured from way back in the 19-teens from the Wilson administration to be independent from presidential control. Uh, a few features to that. Uh, there's uh, seven-year terms to the appointment of commissioners or five commissioners. They're appointed to staggered terms. Uh, there's a political diversity requirement, no more than three commissioners from uh, the same political party. And then key to our discussion today, there are four cause removal restrictions on the president's authority to remove commissioners. They can only be uh, removed in the language of the statute for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. This is the sort of the quintessential four cause removal uh, restrictions. And uh, as we'll discuss, uh, these restrictions came up uh, for uh, consideration before the Supreme Court way back in 1935 in the famous case Humphrey's Executor versus United States. And uh, FDR, President Roosevelt, was trying to fire uh, a commissioner who did, disagreed with his policies or wasn't on board with his policies. And uh, that commissioner, or his estate, because he died uh, shortly after, sued uh, to get back pay uh, for uh, this uh, illegal firing, as he claimed. And the Supreme Court actually held for Humphrey, uh, upheld the for-cause removal restriction in light of the functions of the agency. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that. That case has been uh, reconsidered recently, or at least has been uh, four square in the sites of the court, Supreme Court, in some recent cases in particular, SELA Law versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where the court struck down a for-cause removal restriction for a single director agency. And then again, in a case called Collins versus Yellen, uh, having to do with the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which also had a single director with for-cause removal. In both cases, the court struck down the for-cause removal. Uh, interesting things on relief, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about. So the question then, in light of those cases, is what's the future look like for the FTC? Uh, what will, uh, what's the future for independence uh, at the FTC? And we have a great panel uh, today to uh, address this question, and I'm going to introduce them quickly and get right into it. Uh, to my immediate right, we have Svetlana Gans. Svetlana is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Gibson Dunn. Uh, she focuses on consumer protection, privacy, competition proceedings before the FTC and other agencies and other public policy issues. Uh, she previously served, uh, most important for our discussion today, I think, as chief of staff to the acting chairman of the FTC, Maureen Olhausen. And as chief of staff, uh, Svetlana helped manage and oversee really all the FTC operations. She was a key advisor on consumer protection and competition enforcement matters, and uh, she directed major initiatives for the agency, including process reforms, regulatory reforms, and initiatives to promote economic liberty, data security, and agency transparency. Then we have, uh, to her right, Jen Mascott. As everyone knows, I think Jen is an assistant professor of law and the co-executive director of the Gray Center uh, for the study of the administrative state at Scalia Law School. 
Uh, her academic work focuses on administrative law, constitutional law, and the separation of powers. Uh, she serves as a public member of ACUS, that's the Administrative Conference of the United States, and as a vice chair of the Constitutional Law and Separation of Powers Committee within the ABA's section of, any, of administrative law and regulatory practice. During the last administration, Jen served as a deputy assistant AG in the Office of Legal Counsel of the Justice Department and also as uh, what's known in DOJ lingo as an ADAG, an associate deputy attorney general under the deputy attorney general, uh, Jeff Rosen. She clerked for Justice Thomas uh, on the Supreme Court and for then Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the DC Circuit. And then we're pleased to have uh, joining us the Honorable Paul Verkeil on the big screen. There you go, big brother up there. Uh, Paul is uh, a distinguished senior fellow with the Gray Center. Uh, he served as the Senate-confirmed chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States from 2010 to 2015, where he worked to strengthen uh, ACUS's bipartisan governance structure and the objectivity of its research and recommendations. Uh, Paul's currently a senior fellow of ACUS and the National Academy of Public Administration, where he focuses on civil service reform and government reorganization. He's an active administrative law scholar, a co-author of a leading treatise on administrative law and process, and the author of several other books, including most recently, Valuing Bureaucracy, um, as well as more than 65 articles on public law and regulation. He's the President Emeritus of the College of William and Mary. He's a former Dean of Tulane and Cardoza Law Schools and was a faculty member at the University of North Carolina a Law School. So I'm very pleased to have this whole panel with us. And let's jump in uh, to uh, what I want to consider as topic one and turn really to, to, um, to Svetlana. And I'd, I'd like to have a discussion about what do we mean, what does independence mean for the Federal Trade Commission, really, in the real world? So as a, as a practical matter, how does independence play out? Uh, I described what the structural limitations in the statute are, but what I want to ask you to sort of focus on, Svetlana, is how does that structural independence really play out as a practical matter you know, from the perspective of the chairman's office at the FTC? Uh, great. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you to the organizers for having me here. Very um, humbled to be on this esteemed panel. Um, so in response to the question, there is some interactions between the White House, OMB, and the FTC. Um, there is coordination on major policy initiative, initiatives given the breadth and extent of FTC's jurisdiction. Um, there has been policy coordination in the past on consumer fraud issues, do not call, consumer education, and competition policy. Such policy discussions were historically initiated by the FTC rather than the White House. In addition, many executive orders recommend that the FTC join working groups with other agencies to lend its expertise on consumer protection and competition issues. Generally, the FTC budget goes through OMB because it is the president's budget, and senior appointments typically go through the White House Office of Presidential Personnel. However, as we'll discuss more on this panel, there has been a shift in this administration where the policy initiatives are more aligned, especially with the addition of the White House Competition Council coordinating activities among the agencies. What about uh, cost-benefit analysis for major rulemakings? I know President Obama 
uh, amended the executive order governing cost-benefit analysis to tell those independent agencies like the FTC that you should submit your major rules to OMB for cost-benefit review and coordination. I don't think they all do that. I don't know if the FTC does that. Uh, but that's a major area where other agencies within the executive branch have a lot of interaction on uh, sort of wh what's being proposed for rulemaking. Yeah, well, typically the FTC is not a rulemaking body. Um, historically, it's an enforcement agency, so there has been um, limited coordination on the rulemaking side. Most of the rules are pursuant to um, APA rulemaking authority um, with respect to congressional mandates and specific statutes. So it will be interesting to see you know, what we'll talk about, the major focus right now on FTC rulemaking, um, how OIRA will be playing in, and, and kind of what the um, interactions will be between OIRA and the FTC. The FTC right now does do a cost-benefit analysis, or their statutes at least require them to do a cost-benefit analysis with its rulemaking, but the proof will be in the pudding mm -hmm. um, as we'll be looking at several upcoming rules to see how that actually will play out at the agency. Well, let's talk for a minute about some of the initiatives of the current administration um, and the current leadership at the FTC under Chairman uh, Lena Khan. So uh, how much... And I know you're not inside now <laughs> in this administration, but how, what's your sort of perception of how much direction uh, she's taking from the White House on some of these initiatives? And maybe you could talk about what a couple of them are and how they might you know, implicate the president's agenda and the question of independence versus close coordination and direction from the White House. Um, great question. So as you m mentioned, I'm not there, so I'm not sure what specific direction um, is being discussed, but kind of based on public information, I would say that most, if not all, of Chairman Khan's current policies and initiatives are should be viewed as significant to the White House or implicate the priorities of the White House. So if you compare the, the executive order on competition and the FTC strategic plan, its unified agenda, regulatory plan, recent policy statements and speeches. The current policies and initiatives closely align with those of the president. Both the FTC, if you just take a step back, both the FTC and the White House have indicated a preference for rulemaking over case-by-case -case enforcement. They have prioritized the protection of workers and small business over consumers. Both focus on principles of fair competition rather than unfair methods of competition previously defined to align closely with the antitrust laws. And so let me just unpack that a little bit and give you a few examples. Um, on the policy side, we have the withdrawal of the unfair methods of competition policy statement, the withdrawal and rewriting of the merger guidelines, rulemaking on non-competes, revised antitrust guidelines for HR professionals, right to repair issues, rulemaking on internet marketplaces, rulemaking on occupational licensing restrictions, and rulemaking on corporate surveillance. The FTC has basically opened up the floodgates um, of rulemaking this past year, establishing a new rulemaking unit, issuing three consumer protection advance notices in the past few months, 
just yesterday, their agenda came out for the open meeting um, on October 20th. They will be considering yet two more consumer protection related rules. Um, and this is uh, quite significant because, as I mentioned earlier, the FTC is generally not a rulemaking body. And in fact, the FTC has not promulgated a new consumer protection rule since the early 1980s when Congress passed the Magnus and Moss Act, basically um, adding more stringent requirements to the FTC's rulemaking process and procedure. And this is all before you get to another key question, which is competition rulemaking. Does the FTC have the authority to promulgate competition rules? And do FTC competition rules and privacy rules implicate the major questions doctrine? So as you could see on the rulemaking side, um, the FTC is executing on the president's agenda as, uh, as discussed in the executive order. Um, when you go to the enforcement side, it is very similar. Um, July 1st, the FTC issued uh, or adopted several omnibus resolutions authorizing the commission to investigate key industries of particular focus to the White House. These include technology platforms, private equity, healthcare markets, labor markets, among others. So I guess there's probably no reason to think that anything Chairman Khan is doing in any of these areas uh, is inconsistent with what the president would like to see the FTC do. So we probably don't have uh, a field right there to uh, examine tension, you know, and, and the independence coming into play. But but what if she were going in some direction that? Uh, President and his senior advisors decided was the wrong direction or was too expansive or was not expansive enough. As a practical matter, sort of in your experience, what, what kind of action can the president and the president's team take to try to change the direction at the FTC? None? Or do they get on the phone with her? I mean, the president does uh, designate which commissioner is the chair. So I guess in theory he could say, Lena, you're no longer the chair. Um, that would be pretty dramatic. That would be kind of a public expression of failure, I suppose, so unlikely to happen, I think. Um, but is it practical to think that the president or his chief of staff or somebody would get on the phone with her and say, wait a minute, what are you doing, and go in a different direction, or does that just not happen? I mean, it, it, has, it didn't happen when I was there, um, but um, I would surmise that it would happen, especially on policy cases or policy, larger policy mm -hmm. issues if the FTC is proceeding in direction that the, the White House um, doesn't agree with. I think the issue, um, the kind of the war the problem issues on enforcement cases, right? Because the FTC should be independent and there should not be any coordination or interaction between the White House and the FTC on enforcement matters. So I think that's where um, mm -hmm. it's more important to look at than the policy side because typically and the um, and White House have aligned policy goals, especially yeah. um, with Tim, Tim Wu at the White House and his connection to both Biden yeah. and uh, Lena. Um, it seems like they're they're very much coordinated there. Well, before we move into the next discussion of uh, the recent Supreme Court cases, um, maybe Svetlana, you could um, just mention the Walmart uh, litigation uh, that FTC has has recently brought. And it, that's a case, uh, you know, we don't have to get into too much of the details, but that's a case where 
uh, the issue of the application of the Humphreys executor decision from 1935 is at issue. It's being raised. Um, so what, what's, what basically is the FTC's claim or claims in the, in the Walmart case? So um, the Walmart case is quite interesting. It's actually a case brought under the telemarketing sales rule, uh, which has an assisting and facilitating liability provision. And uh, what the FTC is alleging is that Walmart uh, basically knowingly facilitated the uh, fraudulent money transfers um, and using with consumers using MoneyGram or Western Union or the Walmart uh, branded money transfer service in its um, in its locations. Um, what's interesting is that Walmart is not accused of fraud or underlying telemarketing uh, sales rule violations. It's really being accused kind of as a third party based on its knowledge or alleged knowledge of uh, fraudulent activities uh, of telemarketers somewhere down the chain. Uh, not even uh, MoneyGram or Western Union. So it is, it, it's interesting as a, a legal matter under the telemarketing sales rule, and obviously Walmart raised several constitutional infirmity arguments in its motion to dismiss. Um, what's interesting on the FTC relief is that the FTC is seeking a permanent injunction as well as monetary relief and civil penalties. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is that the FTC settled a suit against MoneyGram and and Western Union, and in those two cases had received close to uh, half a billion dollars in relief, um, which is interesting and perhaps begs the question as to what more um, harm is, is on, um, you know, not, not accounted for based on a half billion dollar um, settlement. Uh, in those I guess two a billion cases. dollars is better than a half a billion. Right, I guess it could be five billion, but it was a half a billion. Um, I mean, I guess, so it, it is interesting, and we'll talk more about the Walmart case, and I'll, I'll leave it to the administrative law experts to discuss the ramifications there. But, um, you know, one other thing I just wanted to touch on, if, if okay with you, is procedural reforms. The FTC, as you know, I mentioned, is, is doing a lot of rulemaking, and it's very interesting when you look at the procedural reforms that uh, the, the FTC majority um, announced um, on July 1st. Um, and it's, it's also interesting when you take a step back and look at the timeline. Uh, so Chair Khan was confirmed on June 15th of 2021, and less than two weeks later, on July uh, 1st, uh, 2021, um, they had an open meeting where they were uh, right off the bat. Um, they rescinded the UMC policy statement. They um, they adopted the eight omnibus resolutions, giving the FTC a single FTC commissioner the opportunity to um, be, to uh, launch antitrust investigations. The the prior procedure was to have the full commission vote out a, a, a subpoena on the antitrust side, and so now it's only one commissioner doing that. Um, they also um, passed procedural reforms to its Section 18 rulemaking authority, uh, which basically gave more power to the chair to um, make decisions on facts and the law as to potential rulemakings. And we may see those uh, challenges come out in terms of the, the, the new rulemaking initiatives that I had discussed earlier. So we may see some challenges there in terms of whether the Section 18 streamlining reforms adopted by the commission um, 
comply with constitutional principles. Um, one other thing just to mention as we're talking about independence, um, and the other, uh, the prior p panel mentioned this when I thought just for the audience in terms of kind of the full gamut of issues is that, um, you know, the Supreme Court next month will hear the Axon case. Um, the Axon case um, raises the question as to whether a litigant can, uh, can challenge the FTC's structural structure uh, during the pendency of an investigation or whether the litigant must wait until the, FT, uh, to the agency concludes its investigation. So I believe uh, oral arguments on, are in early November, so that's definitely going to be a case to watch there. Um, and it has uh, implications now for pending cases at the FTC. I think Barry mentioned that um, the uh, FTC recently lost two cases in its administrative court, um, Illumina Grail and the um, Jewel Altria matter. In that case, the ALJ actually ruled against uh, the commission and the FTC staff, but both matters are being appealed back to the commission who initially authorized the complaint in the first place. So it will be interesting to see what the commission does in, in these uh, two matters, whether it's true that the commissioners rubber stamp their initial um, you know, authorization of the complaint or whether they will have a de novo review of the case um, as, um, as discussed and described by the administrative law judge who is an independent um, judge in the administrative law context at the FTC. And what uh, court is that case you mentioned before that's raising the structural? Is that the it's Supreme, Supreme Court. court. Yep. So that's, that, that'll be big. Yep. Well, let's turn to the Supreme Court and turn to Jen. Uh, if you could, Jen, really just tell us what the court was addressing in these two big cases I mentioned, Sela Law and then Collins versus Yellen, and um, what the court, you know, what, sort of why the court did what it did with uh, the four cause removal restrictions for single director agencies, CFPB and FHFA. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Um, yeah, so in both CELA Law and Collins, as you mentioned, the court was looking at agency heads, basically, who are subject to tenure protections, similar to the protections that cover the FTC commissioners. And you, as you mentioned, the um, Supreme Court in the 1930s upheld those tenure protections as constitutional on Humphrey's executor. You describe Humphrey's as being in the sights of the court. I mean, I think Humphrey's executor certainly has been in the sights of litigants who have brought challenges. But as Chief Justice Roberts tends to do, he um, is a master at employing doctrine. And so despite litigants in SELA law and Collins really urging the court to look at Humphrey's executor again, uh, the chief distinguished Humphrey's executor in both of those cases and really relied on the single director structure of the CFPB and then the Federal Housing Finance Agency in those cases to say, essentially, or I guess Justice Alito and Collins, to say that those, he was following seal law, to say that um, meaningfully, constitutionally, the single director structure is significantly worse and greater degradation of the president's executive authority than the tenure protections over the FTC commissioners. Query how many justices of the court are convinced by those distinctions. We also have different membership now than we did in SELA law with um, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays plays out. Um, Justice Kavanaugh, obviously, admin law is his 
specialty, a lot of expertise. So I would imagine he might be looking at these cases uh, in you know a slightly different uh, or more expert fashion even than some of his um, predecessors. Uh, so if the court is going to continue to employ doctrine and stick with the single head versus multi-head distinction, um, you know that's the way it sort of kept Humphrey's executor on the books. I think the question though um, for um, current litigants and for the court eventually and for the FTC and, and everyone um, involved is whether the agency that the Supreme Court of the 1930s found to be constitutionally structured in Humphrey's executor actually continues to exist today. So, I mean, the court, in, ad in, in addition in Sala Law and Collins to focusing on the single director structure, very clearly said that the president needs to be in a position to be able to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, meaning that he or she must command full authority, essentially over all of the executive branch. And if one rereads the Humphrey's executor opinion, which was fairly brief, um, there's a lot of reliance, in fact, perhaps dispositive reliance on the tasks that were engaged in by the Federal Trade Commission at the time, which were quite limited, um, issuing studies, conducting some investigations. In fact, I don't think the FTC was authorized to conduct its first sort of enforcement or, or prosecutorial uh, steps until 1938, and then those were uh, modest in comparison to what it's doing Today And so if one looks at 90% of the court's language in the state law opinions and even um, when it talks about executive power in the back half of the Collins decision, I think the current FTC operations certainly seem to be falling within um, executive operations. And so if one thinks it's um, just as problematic for um, five commissioners to be exercising executive authority as one director, then um, to the extent that the court's persuaded today's FTC is actually carrying out executive functions, which it seems almost tautologically to, to be doing if you look at its statutory authority. Um, you know, I think one could say Humphrey's executor doesn't need to be overruled. It's just the sum total of the cases need to be applied to today's agency, which would result in a finding that um, there are unconstitutional tenure uh, protections, perhaps on the commissioners, or perhaps the court would take a different route, and it would actually, for one of the first times, try to interpret what the statutory protections ensconcing the commissioners mean. So the commissioners can be removed for inefficiency, mal uh, malfeasance, I think it's neglect of duty, misconduct, those kinds of, kinds of words. So what do those stat statutory terms mean? Well, interestingly, at least at the highest levels of the judiciary, that question's not really frequently been tested because presidents or executive supervisors, whether it's with commissioners or whether it's with mid-level officials uh, subject to civil service protections, don't seem to frequently want to test what those provisions mean. But I think to Steve's point about um, the, the court currently, like the interest, some of the most interesting questions actually in Collins and Seal Law are what the conservative majority of justices today is going to feel comfortable with um, doing on the remedial end if it does in fact find that uh, you know agencies are exercising unconstitutional authority or unconsciously structured and Justice Thomas perhaps most intriguingly in Collins actually says look there's not even any harm in this case because it's actually the case that these directors all along 
can lawfully be fired by the president because we can't even read these tenure protections to constitutionally exist. And so I think some of the most interesting questions could come up uh, if future um, administrations decide to take that at face value. And instead of just bringing these more sort of ethereal or theoretical challenges on the outside by litigants, actually start issuing clear directions trying to effectuate their policy considerations, as Svetlana is suggesting the White House is now doing informally on the side. Just be confident about it, say what you're doing, issue instructions, either they're followed, and the president in charge at the time his policy is, 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 is effectuated, or they're not followed, like we saw at the early days of the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, and then there's some kind of removal, and that tees up a question for the court about what actually needs to be the constitutional structure today of executive branch operations. Yeah, I think that um, your description of uh, the differences between the FTC's authorities in 1935 versus the much more clearly substantial executive power or executive authority within the language of SELA law uh, that you see them exercising under statute today is uh, key to what I understand is the argument that... Uh, that uh, interesting way of arguing it that Walmart is is making in, in its case where it's in the lower courts, it's before a district court. So it's not asking the district court to overrule Humphrey's executor or strike down uh, the removal restrictions. It's basically saying, hey, you got to take Humphrey's executor as gospel. As, that's the law. You have to follow it. And look at what Humphrey's executor said. And it, it focused on the fairly modest authorities at the time of the FTC, the quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial uh, authorities, as the court described it then. And that's not what is happening in the case that uh, Svetlana described, where they're going after monetary penalties, and, and it's much clearer. It looks like a, a prosecution. It looks like a classic executive uh, type of prosecution. Um, so basically, the argument would be the agency can't do that under Humphrey's executor. Uh, so in, in, interesting, but that does you know the the question of trying to strike down the removal restrictions and what that might mean does get to these interesting questions of remedy uh, in the cases that you described, Jen, like in in uh, in the um, case having to do with the CFPB Sela Law. Uh, First of all, the court severed the removal restriction from the rest of the statute, said it was severable. Um, and then it remanded to the district, uh, or to the lower courts, on the question of whether at, at issue there was a subpoena going after a, a law firm. And the question was whether the subpoena or the enforcement of the subpoena had been ratified by the acting director or by a later director who was operating under the understanding that she was removable at will by the president. And the court suggested that if it was ratified, that, hey, mox nix, no problem then. Uh, there's, there's nothing to remedy. Um, and in Collins, the court pretty dramatically, I thought, went even further. I was actually a little shocked with their approach there. Um, they remanded on the question of whether there was any there there for the plaintiff uh, challenging, you know, the court had struck down the four cause removal restriction of the um, Federal Housing Finance Agency director, but said it might not matter 
because he was lawfully appointed in accordance with the appointments clause. He has he could exercise executive power. Uh, and the question the court raised was, is there any evidence that the president opposed what he was doing in this case uh, or tried to stop it? And so we're going to remand to the lower courts to undertake that inquiry. I don't know what kind of evidence you bring to bear. Uh, was there a phone call from the chief of staff at the White House? I mean, does it have to be a public speech the president makes where he, he disagrees with this action or whatnot? But it doesn't seem to be the case that the court thinks there's a, you know, per se invalidity in what the agency is doing just because the four-cause removal uh, restriction is is unconstitutional. And I, I just wonder what you think about that, Jen. I, mean, I was pretty shocked. At I, I don't, I, I mean, look, I think stepping back, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think generally it's, it's shocking in the context of these justices, I think, having general concerns about the role that the judiciary is playing. And, you know, in these cases, we, you know, we're not necessarily talking about national injunction questions, but there's been so much just generally with the federal courts of broad remedial actions in recent years that I think you see the real tr true constitutional conservatives. So it's like Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, some of the others stepping in and saying, what is our proper role? Are we to be reinterpreting statutes? Are we to be um, effectuating what are really broad structural changes? Or are we supposed to be deciding concrete cases and controversies and enforcing yeah. the law? However, that said, I mean, if you read the cases and you take them at face value, it seems to me very clear that what is being teed up is presidents acting like presidents, which it sounds like perhaps President Biden is being willing to do here with the with the FTC, um, and direct, give direction, and it's either going to be followed, and so we essentially have what will be op you know operating as an agency with an at will. Uh, removable head following the executive branch direction or the president issues directions and they're not followed and maybe now if the court's asking for evidence I don't know you write a memo I mean President Trump liked to direct by executive order right so it was clear by cell phone was, well you know maybe people do it by proclamation executive order maybe they write a memo whatever but they give an instruction and either it's going to be carried out or it's not going to be carried out and then they take um, you know disciplinary or supervisory action. The other case, too, that I think it'd be curious to see if litigants or uh, presidents figure out how to um, apply and, and, and push out with more, um, with more relevance is the court's decision in the United States versus Arthrex, which I think gets lost in the shuffle, talking about executive supervision, because it was about sort of perhaps more minor, less grand decisions by administrative patent judges, and the court tried to say we're only deciding now cases that are relevant in the patent context. But essentially, the court suggested that um, presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed officers, and I would think ultimately the president have to be in charge on the front end with issuing directions, that you can't have final decisions, at least by these administrative patent judges, for the executive branch that cannot be reversed by a supervisor. And so if that's true in the patent context, how true is it in other agencies? Um, so I, I think these cases, to me, seem to be a call to the executive branch to manage more closely, more directly, and you know, let's see what happens. Maybe the answer for litigation now is people are going to start being removed or supervised rather than outside parties having to come up indirectly and challenge these individual actions. Yeah. Um. Well, I, I do certainly think that's a lesson from Collins versus Yellen is the onus is going to be on 
presidents going forward to exercise their supervisory control. Uh, Can I just raise actually one other thing, though? For, me, for current litigation, you, you, you and Svetlana mentioned the Walmart litigation, and it is true that's just in the district court, although Walmart has retained two law firms with two very um, well-experienced past executive branch litigators, Hash Mupan, who um, headed the appellate division under President Trump for really essentially the entire administration, and then Roman Martinez, who was an assistant solicitor general, has argued a number of Supreme Court cases. And they are making the Humphreys executor argument that what uh, the FCC is doing in this case is constitutionally distinct from the agency that existed in the 1930s. But also on the remedy side, he's saying, look, Look, if you take at face value the court's concern or Justice Thomas and Gorsuch's concern with severability of four-cause removal protections, they're saying, which part of the statute are we to assume Congress would have um, preferred? Do we really think Congress meant for these removal protections to be severed? And so th they're looking at, I mean, it's, it's just sort of, I think, in the initial stages of being fleshed out. But various scholars like Will Bode and others are starting to write about what does, what does this look like? What are the answers? If the court's uncomfortable with just general severability, what would it do in this context? It has, with Humphrey's executors, two um, functions, perhaps, that independently are constitutional. Uh, maybe the agency can, can we, we found, or at least folks think, that agencies can engage in these enforcement actions. Sometimes removal protections can be constitutional, but you can't put them together. You have this unconstitutional convergence. What do we do? Well, in this case, uh, with the FTC, I mean, the removal protections and the smaller realm of functions were there on the books first. It was after the fact that the amendments expanding the FTC's power led to this constitutional problem. So in that context where we're sort of moving forward in time, would the court be comfortable or a lower court trying to faithfully apply precedent sever or find unenforceable the amended provisions and actually find it problematic, leave the FTC structure in place, yeah. but find unconstitutional the exercise of these powers. And how would these current justices uh, think about that argument? And I think we'll see. Yeah, yeah well, there is a doctrine that the later amendments to the statute that create the constitutional problem right. should fall. Uh, and so there you go. that would be a, that would be a, an approach. So a less busy FTC. But uh, what we learned from Collins versus Yellen, just to get back to that, is that there's this now fundamental difference between appointments clause violations and uh, removal authority violations. Uh, in the appointments context, we take it for granted that if the officer was unlawfully appointed, inconsistent with the Constitution. Anything that officer does is potentially invalid unless it's subject to, as was the case in Arthrex, the court kind of rewrote the statute, I gathered, to make the decision subject to review uh, by a higher, correctly appointed officer, or it has to be ratified uh, after the fact by a correctly appointed officer. But otherwise, it's, it's open season, it's fair game to challenge anything that officer has done. And that's, there was an assumption that that would be true if the four-cause removal restriction was unconstitutional. That's what you see in the PAHH case in the D.C. Circuit when they debated the same issue that went the other way in the Supreme Court on CFPB, four-cause removal. And uh, 
the, the court seemed there to assume that all the actions of the CFPB would be invalidated if the for-cause removal was struck down as unconstitutional. And in Collins, the court said, no, it's basically, he can keep, he or she can, the director can continue to exercise executive authority uh, unless there's evidence that the president, you know, is, is opposed to it or something. And it's a whole new realm, it seems to me. And that's a just, Justice Gorsuch in dissent I thought did a great job of raising all of the implications of that. Um, well, just on that point, yeah. um, the FTC filed their opposition to Walmart's motion to dismiss last week, and mm -hmm. that's exactly the argument that the FTC staff raised in its brief, that even if there is an issue with uh, the removal, um, because the commissioners were uh, appointed consistently with appointments clause, they're citing Collins for the proposition that settled precedent confirms that the unlawfulness of a removal provision does not strip the officer of the power to undertake yeah. the responsibility of his office. So even if there is a removal question, the underlying enforcement action um, should stick given the Collins case. So this is being played yeah. out right now in the litigation. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I think sort of the cleverness or smartness of the Walmart challenges, they're not challenging the for-cause removal sure. restriction, and they're not, they're not saying the FTC, uh, that Humphrey's executor should be overruled. They're saying, take it as a given, and under the reasoning of Humphrey's executor, FTC can't do what it's doing because it's not doing what it was doing then. Um, anyway, let's switch, let's switch gears now and get kind of to the nub of the question, uh, and, um, look at how we think these recent Supreme Court decisions that did strike down for-cause removal restrictions in the single director agency context, SELA law and Collins versus Yellen, how do we think those are likely to affect the independence of the FTC uh, going forward? Um, and so I wanna turn to Paul uh, for Kyle. Uh, and I guess before, Paul, before we discuss the future, <laughs> what does the future potentially look like for the FTC? Uh, why don't you take a minute uh, to share your thoughts on, because I know you have some, on the historical context of the Humphreys executor decision. Came out on a fateful day in 1935. It wasn't the only decision of that day. Um, and how did FDR respond to it? Uh, and then sort of what are your thoughts on the meaning of for-cause removal restrictions for agencies like the FTC? Right, thanks. Um, so Humphreys has led a charmed life. And, and it is a favorite of all administrative law professors. Frank uh, Easterbrook even said it's the case that ratifies the administrative state by granting independence. So what happened on that day, May 27, 1935? My source is recently found notes from Robert Jackson, who was FDR's attorney general, in a book published by John Barrett at St. John's called That Man, That Man, of course, being FDR. <clears throat> So on that day, Jackson's job was to walk into the White House on a Monday and tell the president that he not only lost the biggest case before him, which was the NRA, demise of the NRA, but he also lost this little case called Humphrey's executive. That and other case, the other that, case was Schechter's 
poultry, right? Czech poultry, yeah. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, I, I meant to mention Czech. So it was Schecter poultry, which of course is a great non-delegation case, killing the NRA, and then there is um, Humphrey's executor. Humphrey's executor, um, Roosevelt said, my God, this is personal. He was very angry about it. He accepted the NRA. But the NRA it was such a big deal, and this was this. He said, look, they gave Wilson his, let him to fire his postmaster in Myers. What's, what's wrong here? So that's how it started. And uh, from there, um, FDR changed course, or I think with Jackson's help. And they, rather than becoming a statist organization and having monopolies run by government, the antitrust division came back in force, and in a few years, uh, Thurman Arnold became the chairman. Um, and um, it, that led to a change in outlook, which I think we, we would all applaud, um, which allowed the uh, government to take different positions and use the FTC in a productive way. Um, William Humphreys himself was um, appointed by originally by Coolidge and then reappointed by Hoover in 1931. A lot of opposition in the Senate to him because he was a well-known corporatist who didn't believe in antitrust policy. So that's a good reason why Roosevelt wanted to get him out of there. He obviously didn't use uh, for cause because uh, he had Myers, he thought. Um, so when we go forward, um, when we end up with um, the present day, uh, we have um, Celia Law, I think, is the key case here because uh, the Chief Justice has said in his uh, opinion that there are two exceptions. One is the uh, multi-member commission exception, and the other is the... Um, Ma, uh, uh, sorry, Morrison exception for inferior officers. And, and he cites Morrison and he also cites Perkins, uh, which is a case, if we have time a little later, I'd like to refer to, because that plays a big role in several service uh, for cause removal. So when he said it's different, um, it is true that political balance counts for something, and Appointing the chair counts for a lot in terms of giving the president enough power to run the agency. Um, and now that those are the key factors maybe that would help uh, let uh, Humphrey survive. Um, but uh, Jen said importantly that the, he, he looked at um, Humphreys as it was in 1935, so it didn't have all these executive actions. And if you look at Dan Crane's paper, for this uh, symposium, he makes it very clear. He charts every the, over time the the number of actions taken, and it, and adjudication is a small part of it now. Um, it's mostly quasi legislative and legislative, and a lot of uh, uh, executive action. Um, now, maybe the I'm thinking maybe the way to save it might be if you're looking at that point of view. Uh, make it more like a wiener. Well, a wiener, of course, is an adjudicative agency, and I think four cars removal in wiener would be approved just because of the need for independence and, and the kind of due process dimensions of adjudication. Uh, now, it is 
Dan found 79 cases of adjudication in, in the period covered by the FTC, so maybe that would be enough. I'm, I'm not sure that's a, that would be true. Um, but it certainly is more in more jeopardy than, than it has been for a while. Well, uh, yeah, the court, the court uh, clearly distinguished multi-member commissions like the FTC at issue in Humphreys from the single director agencies and really held that the current court made it clear they're not going to abide expansion or extensions of the Humphreys executor reasoning to these new types of agencies or different structures. Um, but getting back to Humphreys executor, sort of a core, as the Walmart case is, is highlighting, a, a core of the reasoning there was the notion that the agency, the functions it was exercising were quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial, and were not pure executive uh, authority. Um, to what, I'd like just to ask the panel, maybe Paul, we start with you, and then Jen and Svetlana, what, do we really think there's anything left of that concept? Uh, now, obviously, lower courts have to follow Humphreys, so, you know, they have to follow right. the Supreme Court, but if we were the Supreme Court, I mean, if, if, if it comes before the Supreme Court, if, if FT, you know, for purposes of what the future looks like, do we think that reasoning is just going to be thrown overboard, or does it still hold? Does it still make sense? Paul? Well, my, my feeling would be, in terms of quasi-judicial, that um, it, if you look at it, I, I think the big question is ALJs. ALJs, of course, are inferior officers. But, um, we do think after Lucia that there is an issue about four-course removal. Um, and if if you so in that sense, quasi-judicial has some continuing meaning. But in general, I agree with you. I think it, it's a distinction that's harder to to justify. Jen, I agree. <laughs> well, I guess quasi-legislative. You could you can think of you can think of rulemaking as quasi-legislative, right? I mean, we talk about it a lot that way. Has Congress given too much authority to the administrative state? Administrative state is really now being asked by rule to legislate effectively. Um, but isn't that pretty quintessential executive power now? I mean, I mean, the courts made it clear, I think, in these cases, like Paul and others are, or, you know, were saying and we're talking about, I mean, if one just goes back to see the law, and I think I agree with Paul, but that is the key case, and looks at what the court deems to be executive, it will find that the FTC is, you know, with regularity exercising those those powers. And I mean, so again, I think what's left is if folks want to say there's some distinction between a single head and a multi-member head. Um, but that distinction hinges on this idea, I think, that these commissioners are not really having as much executive power because they have to work together as a team. And I just, I don't see any reasoning in the court's recent opinions to suggest that that is actually, if the court looks at what the commission is doing, is, a, is, a, is, is ultimately a, a meaningful distinction. Um, I think actually the Biden administration itself has been somewhat forward-leaning in applying the court's past precedent. I mean, after Collins, it was very, very quick 
to just on its own issue from its Office of Legal Counsel a pronouncement, for example, that the head commissioner of the Social Security Administration could be fired and the Office of Legal Counsel's, you know, trying to negotiate itself and not bring down the FTC commissioners and everybody else who says we're confining this to the Social Security Administration because it's just one person, but they hinge on, you know, all the policy that's being engaged in and a billion dollar budget being managed. All of these things are happening at the FTC. So I think yeah. if you look at the Biden right. administration's own executive branch reasoning. It's authoritative constitutional law pronouncements. I really do not see meaningful distinctions with the FTC commissioners today. What about the Federal Reserve? That's the issue, isn't it? Well, I don't see us making litigants right now going after the Fed Reserve, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable sticking with the FTC. But no, there are all kinds of questions. You're right. And I love, too, that um, Paul is mentioning the administrative law judges. And that's actually an issue. That's the precipitating factor that's prompting the... Um, the Axon challenge. And then there's a similar challenge before the court from in Cochran versus the Securities and Exchange Commission. Mm -hmm. And the court there explicitly declined in both cases to not take on the question right now of the constitutionality of the removal protections for administrative law judges. It's just taking on this more jurisdictional question that Svetlana mentioned. Is it really appropriate from a statutory standpoint even to say that you have to go all the way through the agency's own procedures that ultimately the FTC commissioners themselves, for example, are going to be pronouncing on their own constitutionality before you can go to district court. You know, we'll see how the court answers that this question, this term, and to the extent the court says these challenges can be brought earlier uh, judicially, I think um, it's not too many steps down the line where some of these removal questions are going to be teed up again, whether yeah. it's with these lower level folks, the administrative law judges, or the heads of the agencies themselves. Yeah, I could easily see the you know the court, the modern court. Um, saying all these different independent agencies uh, are exercising executive power um, uh, uh, for purposes of the SELA law and uh, Collins reasoning. Uh, unless you have some body that's purely advisory, like, well, like ACUS. <laughs> uh, right. You know, uh, I, I think that's fine because what you ACUS... Know, uh, may I just add a point about that? There is a D.C. statute on the tax field where you become a resident of D.C. if you have for-cause removal. And so the question was, when I became chairman, did I have, and it says, you know, I have a term, but do I have, it's no for-cause removal. So I, fortunately I wasn't, but if I were, if I were an SEC or an FTC commissioner, I'd be subject to DC taxes because my job would be thought of as permanent as opposed to you know transitional or at will. That's well, those uh, uh, officers with four cause removal protection often, uh, if, if the president does try to exercise that authority and remove them for neglect of duty and efficiency, uh, uh, they often will challenge that. Uh, in court, and um, and a lot of those cases, probably for that very reason, go to the D.C. Circuit. Um, but let's say that the Supreme Court does conclude that the FTC is exercising, I mean, the case is squarely presented and is exercising substantial executive authority and the removal restrictions are unconstitutional, because I think the court, it seemed to me, in Yellen and, and Sela Law, the court made it pretty clear that the removal authority of the president is unrestrictable when it comes to agencies exercising executive power. What, what do we think that would mean for the FTC? I mean, 
Jen raised the question of um, remedy, and it seems pretty darn complicated. Uh, certainly if you think, for example, of a severability question, I mean, how do you sever the removal restriction from all the other uh, structural restrictions that Congress designed to try to keep the FTC independent? Uh, would the whole enterprise collapse? Um, or if not, how would, what, what would it mean going forward if the president at any time, for, for any reason or no reason at all, could remove a, a commissioner from the FTC? Svetlana, do you have any idea? I don't know if it would have that big of an impact. I think wow, that really? um, I think the commissioners are there to fulfill their mission and carry out the statute. Um, and I don't think they're thinking like what what will happen. I mean, at least you know we're, we're there to do our jobs. But um, you know, but I could be wrong. I'm not. I'm not quite sure how it would play out. Just because there's really not a lot of direction. I mean, you kind of just. Fill out the mission that you want, carry out your objectives. Well, there could be a lot more direction in that universe, right? I mean, the White House, the president's team could come knocking on the door and say, hey, things are going to change from now on. Everything you do, every major decision, you got to pre-clear with us. You know, just like other agencies and departments, you got to keep us surprised in advance. We don't want any surprises. Yeah. You know, we want to be comfortable with what you're doing. Um, it, you know, it reflects on us, reflects on the president, and if, not, if you're not comfortable with that, you know, today, tomorrow, the next day, you're out. Yeah, but I think that's kind of implied now that you're, the president appointed you, so you need to Interesting. Um, at least be consistent with, uh -huh. with, the, with the objective. But, but with a seven-year term, you know, that president may be gone pretty soon. Right, but then the, the party would... Um, the chair is the party of the mm -hmm. of the president, so you would have a different chair yeah. at that point. But how about um, other thoughts, Jen or Paul, on what it might mean practically for the FTC? Is it workable? Well, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Did you say you don't think so? No, no. I, I think it's workable. It's, there are rare cases where there'd be a problem, but most. As we said, Svetlana said, most uh, appointees do what they're told, and maybe they don't do it so well. Yeah. Um, but um, is that enough to fire somebody? You know, and then again, then you got to reappoint them, and then you got to go through all of that. So there's there's a hesitation to take that step. You can understand. Well, there might be less hesitation to get people confirmed, right? Well, do you always need to get somebody confirmed? I mean, if, well, if, if you don't like the current constitution of the commission, uh, the, income, the new incoming president could just ask for the resignation of one or two key commissioners and totally change the balance of power, right? I mean, I, I wonder if the change would come because, um, at least in theory, the president in that framework should be seen as more responsible for the determinations of the FTC. Absolutely. So to the extent that we think the president would be influenced to step in more or less frequently or would face some accountability based on the FTC's actions, that could be really interesting, right? Like right now, I think the president's able to sit aside and say, oh, the FTC is just doing the necessary independent job to enforce the law. But if it becomes the president is pursuing a billion-dollar enforcement action against Walmart, yeah. 
what does that look like? How does yeah. the administration respond to such? I think that's how yeah. it would be portrayed. I would, I would agree with that. On the enforcement side, it's definitely a bigger issue than on the policy side, where yeah. coordination right now is pretty um, common. Okay. Well, um, given the time, why don't we uh, pause there and see if there are any questions from the audience in this fascinating constitutional discussion? Anybody? Yeah. And we have a microphone for you. Hold on. Hi. Yeah. Uh, my big, my big uh, question was, I, I saw that like Chairman Khan um, was like reimagined the FTC and like has empowered the chair herself. Um, is that empowerment like now that the chair, that the president chooses the chair, is that more constitutional in the sense that if the chair has more more of the power, it's less of a uh, separation of powers issue? Well, I'll, I'll say a word and then turn it over to um, Svetlana and Jen. I think have something. Um, the court, I think the Supreme Court would say that's a factor in whether the kind of reasoning that was applied in the other two cases, the single director agency cases, uh, necessarily applies here. Because that certainly is a structural factor that gives the president more control over the FTC, the fact that he can designate who the chair is and has that close working relationship with the, uh, with the chair. But maybe Svetlana, you have a, or Jen? Go ahead, Jen. Well, I mean, I just, sure. I mean, the president's able to appoint the chair. I mean, but, you know, and I suppose, like we were talking about before, could remove or just, just redesignate, redesignate a different to a different, to a different chair. I mean, look, we have a little bit of an example of how changes in structure have played out with the CFPB. I mean, essentially, really what's happened is just that now the president can make sure that their individual is um, more easily in charge and not have to deal with sort of the hangover terms. Um, so I don't know. What would it look like if we still had the statutory restrictions in place on the political party diversity? Maybe just a more moderate person from each political party would be selected mm -hmm. to represent the opposing political party. Would that change the direction of it? Um, but I still think the court would find that the, um, if it's going to reexamine the structure in general, I don't think the whole designation of the chair would save the tenure protections necessarily mm -hmm. of the other commissioners. I think the question is just, is a litigant going to be able to successfully tee up the question in a way now where the court would be able to take on the issue without, and would it be willing to overrule Humphreys? Could it negotiate? with Humphrey still on the books, and what would the more conservative justices do on the remedy side? Yeah, and then on the enforcement side, um, you know, the questions will still, still remain as what, whether or not the appointment is, is um, constitutional in terms of the, the functions and the activities and the laws that they uh, decide to bring and the theories they allege, and so that those decisions also have a lot of constitutional dimensions in terms of um, the scope of authority, like rulemaking, for example, on the competition side, the Section 18 questions on the MAGMOS rulemaking side. So even if the appointments issue is resolved, you still have a lot of discretion of the chair in terms of pursuing uh, different cases and remedies. Jen, I think you, I'm not sure if you were referring to the holdover provision, but there is, you know, there's a holdover uh, statute. It's been in the FTC Act since the beginning that uh, 
basically provides that um, that a sitting commissioner stays on even after the expiration of his or her term until the su successor is appointed. Um, interesting question. I sort of kick around. How would that would that con continue to exist too if the four cause removal were removed? Um, I tend to think it probably would not. I mean, the the court seems to me to be taking the position that the president's removal authority has to be unrestricted, and that's a restriction on it in a, in a way. Uh, so, um, but you know. Well, but isn't it still? Is does that provision though right now? Is it interpreted to work in tandem with? The tenure protections. I mean, presumably you can't. I mean, how would you have a holdover FTC no, commissioner if you discovered that the person was like stealing? Money? Right. No, I mean, you're right. It, it, so, it, the removal is immediate once it so, happens. So actually, if we play if we play it out, so let's assume that they're all all subject to at will removal at every time, and a president's forward leaning like President Biden was at the start of his administration, even with getting rid of people on these little commissions over here. So I assume the next Republican president will, will operate the same way. Um, you know, if, if everybody who is even held over from the other president's party is, um, well, well, actually, I think what, like if the party changes hands, right, presumably yep. the president would keep in place anybody who at the time had been appointed who was of his own political party, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe he would not. Appoint. Well, 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 I think it, they have to be 3-2. I think it depends... And, but do they have to be 3-2 at the time of appointment or at the time that they're serving? Because if it's at the time of appointment... It's appointment, I think. Okay, but it depends on the president. If it's a Republican, yeah. it's three I, two the Republican, and first vice I versa. I think we would just see more. Don't we? I mean, wouldn't the membership necessarily become just less really bipartisan because whatever president's in charge would just get the person from the other party yep. who is as close to their policy preferences? Yeah, yeah, I and mean, that was the possible. point in CLA law. Is like, are they experts or are they political? Typically, they're experts, but you know, if you add the political dimension, it might right. skew the decision making. Yeah, yeah. Well, particularly on the enforcement side, where in theory they have discretion, right? They don't have to bring any. I mean, they can execute the law faithfully and make many different iterations of decisions about who's going to be charged with what, subject to which penalties. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, audience questions? Over here, we have one. And this will, I think, be the last. We need to wrap up. Hello. Um, so this might appear naive, but I'd like to get your opinion on this. If we ever had the situation where we could run the deck where we had Congress red and the, and the president Republican, is there a way to circumvent what I see as this years of, of trying to change this through the judiciary, of trying to have Congress actually make changes? And if we had that rare window, which one just passed, who would lead that charge to get this done? Because that seems to be, that could hand strap some judicial opinion. Any thoughts on that? My, my thought is it should be the president who takes the lead in proposing changes. But. Well, I think you're asking whether Congress would actually statutorily amend the um, removal provisions and just make it at will. I mean, I don't know. Do we still have a filibuster in the Senate, or do we not? Under your scenario, <laughs> in, in your alternative universe. <laughs> so that's interesting. That may give me a chance to mention the case yeah. that was cited, and that's the Perkins case by the 
Chief Justice in his opinion. And the reason Perkins is important is because it's the case that validated the Pendleton Act, which is the act that created really the civil service, the tenure in office for civil servants, which at the time wasn't so broad, but by the uh, Civil Service Reform Act of 78, it is now consists of most of the government employees are in the civil service. So the fact that Pendleton Act was uh, connected to Perkins does at least make you wonder a little bit about what would happen if someone attacks the civil service because there's a full cost removal problem right there. Um, and I'm very hopeful that the civil service will survive based on Perkins and the fact that we're not dealing with, um, you know, uh, inferior officers or, or employees. Uh, but that's, so anyway, I just wanted to put, the, put a note out for that. That's a big note. Uh, and on that note, I think, unless there are any final thoughts, uh, I think we should wrap up. And I want to thank the panel for an interesting discussion. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.